So we went hiking this morning, and I had to jump over a creek, and my pants ripped completely wide open, straight down the front, dick waggling out for the rest of the hike. And Maddie and uh, Sarah and Ross took it really well and just took it in stride, which is better than that's ever gone when it's happened in elementary school, middle school, high school, and college multiple times in East. So I just want to cheers to, like, finding good friends. And, you know, it gets better. Mm. It gets better mm-hmm. for fat people that constantly rip their pants. Oh. Hey, everybody. I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And this is The Mix Six, where we have six beers, six conversations, rate them on a five-point scale, occasionally have deep, divulging confessions about ripping our pants. Occasionally. And just generally go with the flow. Um, we don't have much for the pre-party today, do we? No, I mean, we're probably past we're, Gen Con yeah, at this point. We're probably past Gen Con. We, we, we want to say thanks party to fun. everybody. Yeah. That party we met available for pre-order on Backer Kit. That's exactly right. We'll we'll have an episode where that we record after Gen Con where we call out people by name for bringing cool stuff and what I assume is probably like s'mores-related and or hot dog-related things. Yes. Sauerkraut. You're forgetting sauerkraut. Nope. Definitely not forgetting sauerkraut. <laughs> Neither is, I imagine... That would be intentionally omitting sauerkraut? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. I forget nothing. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I mean, thanks to everybody who we will have met by the time you hear this, he said. Pre-thanks. Pre-thanks. Pre-thanks and a pre-party. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you have listened to any version of what we do here in the past, you know that uh, as we talk about six different things, we also review six beers. And to do that, we use a five-point rating system, which changes from episode to episode. A one on that rating system is one of the worst beers you've ever had. A five is one of the best beers you've ever had. And today, Caleb has leaned into a rating system. Yes. And I want you to know, not only have you leaned into a rating system, but one which is highly objectionable. In, I did it in opposite to the general, uh, you know, they already expressed their opinion, and I'm just going to disagree with them. Right. So I hope. Yeah. I hope that this, this is the well reverse of the order where you typically say something and they have a groundswell, uh, like massive push against you. Right. Uh, I've sort of reversed the order. Judo flip. Yeah, exactly. So jump in there. Uh, so I'm going to do with cheesy snacks. Love it. Cheesy snacks. A lot of opinions here, too. Yeah. This is a minefield. Yeah, I don't care. I'm, I'm just going to run right through it. God will protect me if I was meant to live. <laughs> it's like a habanero stuffed into a block um, of cheese. So, one, I'm going to go with the cheddar cheese crackers. I know that's not super descriptive, but I'm talking about ones about half the time are filled with peanut butter. They come in the six to eight pack. Oh, yeah, like, like gas station. Like square gas station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They taste primarily of cardboard and then somehow paste turned in. From made from cardboard, um, they're not great. They're, I mean, they'll no. do in a pinch if you just need some ch- cheese adjacent flavor, but it, it's not. It's not a very good snack. It seems like a thing that you could make by just squeezing easy cheese on crackers, and yet instead they have managed to find like a powdery cheese substitute. And yet, easy cheese on crackers is better that, than that. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they found a cheaper way to do the cheap way. Yeah, and it's terrible. I'm with you on this. I, I, I hard one, bottom once won't buy them again. All right. I'm going to vote for number two, Cheetos. Now, they're very good. They taste good, but the cleanup from Cheetos Bingo. takes it down a notch. Bingo. Even baked Cheetos, which are probably a three for me, but like the the regular Cheeto. Yeah. And then when you get to like the flame and spicy jalapeno cheddar, ha- habanero cheese, right. I don't want any part of that. Like, who wants to lick just pure 
what is essentially now mace off your fingers. That's exactly like right. it is essentially pepper spray. Here's the thing that you're trying to lick off your digits. That's not cool. I want to disagree with you vehemently on principle because I want to stir up as much of a hornet's nest around one of your rating systems. Yeah, you have a you have a vested interest in this. I do. But the thing is, you're so incredibly right that <laughs> the dust and disgustingness of the Cheeto mess alone makes it a lesser snack. It's, yeah, so it's taking down the flavor. I have to agree with you. Uh, so three, I want to go with Cheez-Its. Here's where I think you get a little sideways. Yeah, okay. Uh, so Cheez-Its, uh, they're the baseline. Like, you want a cheese snack, you go for a Cheez-It. I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they're a little dry for me. Mm. Cheez-Its are a little dry, a little dry, dry and salty for me. Not, not wild about them. Here's my hot take on Cheez-Its. On if you want a better version of a Cheez-It, don't do what you suggested or about to suggest. Instead, get the reduced fat Cheez-It or the Cheez-Its that are overly burnt. They actually sell the, like, crispy Cheez-It. See, I don't, I don't like the crispy ones. So good. That's even more dry. I do like reduced fat. I like the big ones. I don't know if they still have the big I don't, ones. I don't know that they the, have the uh, giant. The yeah. ginormous Cheez-Its, yeah. I like that a little bit more. Really? Yeah, but here's what, here's what a real connoisseur is going to go I think for. You're wrong. And it's a cheese nip. The, the cheese cracker of the people. Because you can really get a whole wad of cheese nips in there, and they're more than the sum of their part when you get the sort of this cheese nip paste going th- on in your mouth, and that's the mm, I think the creme de la creme. I think that you've made a mistake in juxtaposing two obviously diametric entities, <laughs> and and you've put them in the wrong order. No, like Cheez Its are for me comfortably better than yeah. a cheese nip, and, and I know how th- I know that's what most people think, and, and most people gap. are wrong. Okay, all right. I disagree. Uh, Cheez-Its are class traders. Attica. Are food of it just seems it just seems awful. But anyways, what's your uh, what's your five? Now five. This is swanky. All right, the Ritz cheese crackers, which is everything the cheddar cheese cracker at a one wants to be, right. and a delightful round buttery morsel. It's like this cheese in the middle of mm, a Ritz cheese cracker. If they're pre-made, if you made them yourself, it doesn't matter. It's still a solid cheese. Make snack. them yourself. They're actually the, more delicious. The Ritz is really the one like putting it over the top. It's the key. The key is the cracker, not the cheese component, which is the the sneaky paradox of cheese snacks. I understand this is an integer system, and so I'm okay if this is the answer. And someone who has been guilty of kind of like splitting integer hairs in the past, but I noticed you didn't mention goldfish. Mm. Which are for me kind of like goldfish and cheese. It's are one in well, or in this case five and four in cheese snack world. And so it's are you where do goldfish fit in your integer system? I guess uh, goldfish are comfortably between uh, cheese it and cheese nip. Like at a like 3. a three point nine actually. Oh, so really more on the cheese nip side. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Goldfish are great. I. I disagree with your four or five here. Um, goldfish are great because you don't even actually use to have to use your hands to no. drink them. Put them in a mug. Have a just have use a cold the bag, cup of man. Goldfish, yeah, they, they delicious. come in a goldfish delivery. They're drinkable. System. Yeah, thanks, Pepperidge Farm. Yeah, they're the right size for it. Anyways, um, I disagree with you a little bit here. I'm not going to question your character or say terrible things to you. I assume the internet will, <laughs> and I both want that for you and don't want that for you. And so here we go. Uh, using this rating system, we're going to grab some beers, and we'll be back. We'll be right back on the other side with dissecting your fun. Hey, what are you drinking? This is from Evil Twin Brewing, and the beer list tells us that we've sampled a number of Evil Twin beers. Uh, kn- nine. Yeah, according. I knew it was yeah. a high number, and I, I think you're right. I think they've been like middling yeah. at best, um, but Evil they're trying. Twin's like a C student. Yeah, they're getting by. Speaking of C's, 
This evil twin beer is called C is for Cherry. I totally set you up for that one. Thank you Did so you much. That, you Did you see you that alley-oop? Yeah. Um, if they've got a, a shot at a five Teamwork. here, and I don't know that I've ever had a five, but if they've got one, this is it, because yeah. I love me some Cherry sours. Cherry is good. All so right. here Weezer goes. He yeah, I've, I I had one already, and sort I quite enjoyed it. Sort of oddly magenta can for something advertising cherry as the flavor. Well, like cherry Coke. Yeah, yeah I guess, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. They're kind of going for a cherry Coke. That's adjacent but. to cherries. Yeah. That's I mean, very good. Yeah. Can, that's, I get, can I get in there? That's cherry good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome point. I am not going to stop this. Um, that is a hyper-drinkable light beer. Ooh. That is heavy on the cherry and good on the sour I mean, on yeah, the back yeah. end. Yeah, I like that. I would drink the shit out of that beer. Mm-hmm. I know I was just giving Caleb shit for this on a previous episode about overrating things, and I'm typically not the one not the one to give out points, but I think that's a five for me. Oh man, a Spencer five. Yeah, means something. You worked hard for that. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that is an utterly drinkable beer, and and. And for me, this is kind of the distinction in the four or five range, like utterly drinkable and really delicious versus I would go to a store looking for you. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. a lot of fours for me are I'm at uh, like the Brown Derby or McAdoodles, one of our liquor stores. Need some beer. Going to get that four. Going to get the four versus I'm going to go to the store today to find trip. a yeah. Sea is for Cherry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a that's really, really good. Good on Evil Twin. Hey, we're into dissecting our fun, and we're taking a listener suggestion today. Caleb, what are we talking about? Wayne Rossi suggests, thank you, Wayne, uh, games where players have completely different objectives slash win conditions, for example, Vast the Crystal Caverns, do they work for you, and what do you like and dislike? Hmm. So, uh, hot take here, I don't like games with different win conditions per player. I am with you i have some caveats but i I am largely with you on that i i don't think it makes a good strategic meta around the table here's here's my number one problem with this um and and maybe your caveats or maybe as we talk through some examples I'll, i'll find some ripples in my argument and i'm open to that but for me the separate win condition thing um i've never played a game where i feel like the win conditions despite their difference still require an equal amount of effort and or playtime so separate win conditions to me never feel like parity symmetrical that's exactly right uh there there's there always seems to be some vast difference in what you have to do to achieve those things mm-hmm. uh, and that vast difference is unovercomable for me in a lot of ways so I I guess I like the idea that people can have their own objective-based win conditions in theory. I've never seen it put into practice in a way that makes me go, yes, totally level playing field. We're all just moving to different parts of the field, and we all have equal opportunities to do so. If I could find an example like that, then I could probably evaluate this more objectively. But in in lieu of evidence to that, I've not seen this done well. So yeah. Completely separate win conditions I'm against for this reason. You have to play the game with the same people three or four times before there becomes any level of strategic knowledge that goes deeper than what's the most optimal move this play. Right. Like, there's no level of interaction level with that because, like, if it's just I have a secret card or a secret objective, then it becomes a matter of, like, well, I don't know what I should stop you from doing. That's exactly right. I I don't know what I should do before you. Yep. Um, And so you have games where that's the possibility where everyone's chasing their own thing and you've never played the game before. And you have to become deeply familiar with what, like, the game is doing behind the scenes. Yeah before you can start making the strategic decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm more okay with um, open objectives, that every, everyone has a different objective, but we all see what they are. Sure, like they, Lords of Waterdeep, for yeah, example. Yeah, because then you can sort of do that. And Lords of Waterdeep is okay, but like the objective right. is still like score the most points. Sure, yep. 
um, not like do this, do this, do this, and then you will have scored the most points. Yeah. You just let, and then like the Lords of Waterdeep meta, by the end of it, by the end of like the third turn, you know what the person's getting bonuses for. Yeah, I think there's an important distinction here. Um, there are a lot of games like Lords of Waterdeep and Scythe to some extent where the it's not necessarily a different win condition, but there are a variety of different methods to get to a shared win condition. Yeah. As compared to your win condition is do this seven times and my win condition is purple. Yeah. That's where I and get And here's the thing. I prefer Lords of Waterdeep system of like 100%. these two things will be bonuses for me. So look for those two things as they come up organically in the play. That's exactly right. To scythe system. Because sometimes you get two objective cards cool. and you're just like, well, you're fucked. Yep. Like can't well, do either of those. You're not getting stars on this one. Yep. Like um and it's not symmetrical at all it's that it's that sort of problem you have yo it totally is i am okay with differing player objectives in the result of uh co-op games so i'm like fine with dead of winter like um even even without a betrayer i'm fine with you having like well i win extra yeah because i did this thing sure um most of the time i feel like that because the balance of trying to keep everyone alive sort of gives you at least a place to start oh, strategically yeah, yeah, yeah. examining the so game. So we're all number one. The question is who's 1A and who's 1B. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah that doesn't bother That's me as much. That's better. Um, and then I'm okay with variable win conditions when it's a central point economy and lots of things can score those points. But I have caveats there too because like if it's too many things... Yeah. I hate it worse than everyone just having their own individual objective and that being it. That's exactly right. Like, uh, <clears throat> So for instance... Um, Scythe might have too many things for me, man. Scythe has um, an inordinate... No- so so for those of you who haven't played Scythe, uh, the game ends as a player places their sixth star along the star tracker, which is like there are eight or ten different ways that you can gain stars throughout the game. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have to use sort a of shared... standard objectives. That's exactly right. You know, But wh- one of those objectives is achieving your... Secret objective. That's right. Yeah. You know, win a combat, deploy all of your mechs. Uh, you know, use all Upgrade of your, everything. Use all of your workers. Everybody. That, yeah. That, yeah. So, so there's a pool from which you can choose how to achieve your objectives or, or what objectives you're going to achieve to achieve to win the game. But even then, um, sometimes it is a little baffling. I, the other problem that I run into. So we've been playing Terraforming Mars lately, for example. See, that that for me is just down from Scythe, where it's like enough for me to handle. Like, right. I can see Sarah running away with it. I can see that we got too hard on her, and yeah. now Brandy's running away with it. Yeah. Even though her points are down, I can sort of look at the tile placements, see what we're going to get bonuses for. Right. So you're going to get bonuses for the card, and keep track of what's going on. And then there's games like Five Tribes, where it's just like... I have no who, idea what's ever happening. Who fucking know who wins? That's exactly let's, right. Let's do 20 minutes of math, right. and we'll see. Like It looks like, like a spirograph painting, and then someone won a game. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, my trick is, um, and, and maybe this is kind of more the, like, why I don't really care for um, separate winning or win condition or uh, objectives. Um, I struggle typically in the middle of games, like longer strategic games. I'm usually pretty good out of the gate saying, I need to start doing this, and... There's usually a point 80% of the way through the game or so where I feel pretty confident. I know where we are in terms of standing. I know what I need to do in order to like round the game out. It's the middle 50% that is typically fairly difficult for me where I have to kind of like start leaning in on something Mm -hmm. to reduce ambiguity and to kind of keep my brain straight. And the problem with separate win conditions is... That's one more thing I have to start figuring out or paying attention to when I'm already trying to generate my own engine out of ambiguity. Yeah. And I get really <clears throat> admittedly lost. That's not a reason these games are bad. That's a reason I'm bad at these games. I want to make that clear. Yeah. Um, but I, 
I'm also of the opinion that typically a good game is like something uh, with a shared sense of purpose and or win condition where people can practice or play more or read or get better. And when you, you know, your win condition is go right and my win condition is go left and we don't have a whole lot of interactivity in the middle there. I don't feel like I have the opportunity to be better than you in those instances. Well, aside from like our own performance in it, though, I will say that like you're asking for trouble. I'm not saying it can't be done well, but like when we were doing party foul, people kept asking us for like, well, do the ducks have variable player powers? And we thought about it and just yeah. like, well, we just added a year and a half of play testing. To right. This. Like right. the, the balance issues of variable playing powers are so deep and intricate. Oh, yeah. And fucking exponential like right. when you change one thing the ripple effect on the whole game is a thing i think that's why For variable been... pair of player powers that's yeah even more so I, I will say that like i don't think these work very often because it is such a big ask as a design yes like it is a very very difficult thing to do that's why i've been so impressed with games like scythe and terraforming mars where corporations and or factions can so drastically change your strategy and what you're capable of doing and yet I have seen a different faction uh, win each game of Scythe that I've played, and I've seen different corporations win Terraforming Mars. Well, Terraforming Mars blows my mind because every card's unique. Right. Like, there's never, a, there's not a repeated card in Terraforming Mars. Yeah. It blows my freaking mind. So from a design perspective, if you can do it and do it well, I'm really impressed by, the, if, if you can manage difference really well from a design perspective, mm-hmm. that's very impressive to me. What, what I'm saying is, and to kind of return to my initial point, I've not seen difference in scoring or win condition managed well and so i've not played vast the crystal caverns but if people have suggestions that they think are kind of like peak different win conditions i'd be interested in knowing what those things are i demoed it at origins and it's very much that issue of like well i don't know what i'm doing in this i don't know what every other card a person has unless the demo guy has showed me and i also don't know what is in the deck as possibility of secret objectives so it's just Calvin Ball. Like, I have to play my own yeah. game, and I don't know what else, what game you're playing, right. so I don't know where to stop you. There's no defensive aspect to it, especially yeah. when it's secret. Um, I don't love so, that. Yeah. I don't I'm love that. Crazy about if it. you've got good, good examples, we'd love to hear them in the comments, because obviously we're playing a lot of games, and we're genuinely interested in finding better ones. Um, on that note, we're going to grab more beer. Wayne, thanks so much for the question. We'll be right back. Caleb, what's that beer? All right, full disclosure, ethics and beer journalism. I've had this before multiple times. Uh, this is Left Hand Brewing's Wheel Goes Around. And it's a good name. It is delicious. Um, I'd say this is a five for me. Would, would it be a five for you? Probably a four. Honestly, the way that it gets to be a five for me is if it leans in a little bit harder on the raspberry. So the trick mm, the wheels goes yeah. around is I believe it's a raspberry lemon goza. Yes, you can um, taste both, though. And I don't know that I want lemon getting in my raspberry gozas. I like See, the sweetness. I, I like a Rattler, though. I right. like some ginger lemon. I like some lemon on the back end. I can taste the raspberry just fine. So Yeah. Um, it's intensely drinkable. I'd have 12 of these in a night and make a fool out of myself. Perhaps you, rip my pants, but I'm in an area of acceptance now. You're so probably also out of, fine. about out of pants, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, I'm point. running short on pants. We'll, so, we'll get him some sweatpants. It'll yeah, be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Up your Patreon pledges so Caleb can get pants, uh, We people. have a P.O. box. Send me pants. Um, anyway, in what we're going to talk about here in our number two vote getter is we'll never be author uh, in your hardest, try-hardiest pun. 
Um, it really is. <laughs> I've never leaned in anything that hard before. Where we uh, write either uh, a book, a, a TV series, or a movie that we will never write. Right. And just have a brainstorming based on disparate elements. Um, so the first thing we do is a genre. And the Twitter poll was intensely interesting. Because at the time of recording this, yeah. we were it's tied. dead even for two. So we're going to have to combine them because we are nothing but tools of democracy. That's exactly right. Uh, so what, what are we, what's our genre here, Spencer? So both slasher and sci-fi. Oh, man, there's ha- been some classics. Had the same number of votes. <laughs> and so we thought, well, yeah, like Freddy in space or Jason in space. Uh, uh, Jason X, you mean? Yeah, Jason, Jason X. X yeah. yeah, okay. Geez. Yeah, Jason in space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Jason X. It's the title. Definitely. <laughs> uh, so we thought, well, this is this is a, a kind of unexplored genre. I mean, we've had some people poke around. Obviously, this was kind of the theme of the Alien series, and many of that never, many of them never quite got there. But this is the shot we're going to take. So a slasher sci-fi fic. And then the other trick here uh, is that we don't come up with our own story elements. We we pawn those off on producer Ross, who reveals them to us live. Yeah. But this week, those story elements have actually been generated by... Producer Maddie. Yeah, producer Maddie. Producer yeah. Maddie. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah, who has given me the elements. So uh, do you want to reveal one at a time or all three? Oh, we need all three to okay, develop yeah, yeah. A, a cohesive tableau. Uh, all right. So the three elements, as chosen by producer Maddie, are fog. A chess metaphor and mistaken identity. Chess or chest? Chess. Okay. And the game yeah. of king. Fog. A chess metaphor and mistaken identity. The fog plays well for space, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of dense, a lot of fog in yeah. space. You know, you said sci-fi. Sci-fi can take place on a planet. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, Not yeah, just yeah. in in a space. You're totally right. Yeah, you're totally so. right. It could be an alien, for example. Okay. Um, I will open. Uh, and then I'll let you run with it. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's dusk on Louisiana nine, <laughs> the now ninth iteration of our attempt to recreate Louisiana, recreate Louisiana after multiple generations of humans have periled in a terrible, terrible post-apocalyptic scenario. Okay. What remains are sentient beings and a few straight old just regular humans with like chromosomes and blood and shit (laughs) and they are trying to rebuild society based on the bayou go (laughs) wait is this on earth or a planet it's on louisiana nine ross i don't know if you saw the beginning so that's a plan why are they trying to recreate the bayou? hey caleb that's your job now boo i've just i've i've set the stage honestly i think pretty well and of the three of us, I'm not the writer at this table, so I'm struggling with how much you guys are struggling. So I'm going to go ahead and let you just jump right in there now. Okay. Um, oh, geez. This is tough. Why would you make Louisiana in space? Uh, anyway, okay. So <laughs> here's where I'm going at. Okay, great. So sort of a Westworld scenario okay. in this film. All right. Um, Louisiana 9, obviously we're post-scarcity. Duh. Like there was that post-apocalyptic thing, but yeah. then we got... Everything. Free of material bounds because we've made nine Louisianas and that is nothing but a signs of excess. We've like, got all of the alligator meat and jazz. Yeah, you when can you ever have want. nine Louisiana planets, you are living in some 40k level of extra. That's right. Um, so that's right. Uh, I will say Louisiana nine is a game planet where Uh-oh. immortal humans, gene hacked to hell and back, love it, and who live forever, um, just play around in what is basically. Uh, a tactical top-down quadrant shooter 
only oh wow they're watching it from satellites in space around Louisiana nine and using uh, Android simulacrum Bayou robots to sort of engage in their like uh, Hatford Grangerford feuds. It's it's basically called feud Running Man. Yeah, uh, so it's it's uh, it's space you know gods okay. basically. Uh, you know, using uh, playing StarCraft, but with Hicks, right, right, shooting each other with double barrel shotguns. Mistaken identity, though. One of the space god people go. gets trapped in Louisiana oh, Nine, but people think that, and they think he's just a robot gone rogue. Oh shit! And he's got to survive with a bunch of cybernetic rural killers being directed towards him, and now he has become a pawn in his own game. Yes, yes. Chess so they metaphor. are literally literally Check. playing chess with the cybernetic hicks uh, roaming around the cybernetics. bayou. Cybernetics. Yeah, cybernetics uh, in their, you know, their fan boats Yep. Uh, with their, their you know, cyber straw hanging out of their digital mouths but and trying to murder see. him by, and just doing their programming which involves like hee-hawing and saying, you look real pretty and doing all sorts of slasher flick tropes, but he is a—he's you know—he's a space person who's so like would be immortal were he not being hunted by knife wielding robots. And it's it's basically Terminator meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is brilliant. Yeah. And here's the trick: so uh, the the space gods playing the game now with one of their own are limited in what they can see as they move their players around the board because of the fog. Of war, yes, yeah. Fog of war mechanic. It's a hidden. It's a hidden player mechanic. It's a hidden player so, mechanic. like when they're hanging out in the space station, you know, drinking cocktails, playing feud, uh, they don't know who's playing what player. And then, like, there's sort of a Hunger Games mechanic in everybody up on the satellites, just oh, like, oh yeah, who's playing that edgy fellow who got out of Swamp Sector Evan, like eighteen, yes. like I, that was the best play I've ever seen. Yes, I, I didn't know you could get that out of you know low level you know Hicks like that. Mm-hmm. They don't realize he is one of them, and they are in fact hunting him. And so he starts to lead the board. What was his human sentience? That's exactly right. And therefore he gets more targeted by other the players because he's worth more points. That's right. So kind every, of a ready player. Everyone one. is sort of like moving their hexagon you know, inbred families of murderers closer to him to try and take him down uh, with their, their cyber hat fields. Uh, least, least he, you know, win the game, but yep. he's just trying to escape because he's like, Hey, my shuttle crashed here. Yeah. Uh, maybe he's also a working man. Like maybe he's just a space trucker oh. that crashed and you can like work in a whole like subtle theme about the decadence of mankind right yeah so you're telling me that that you just to be clear would like to work in a theme where we we uh you know actively disgrace excess i don't know capitalism yeah or yeah caleb's just a big fan of elysium and he just wants to have matt a matt damon-esque guy who's just i'm a big fan of like 55 minutes of Elysium. Thank you. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I'm not sorry I'm just for a that. common man irradiating robots. I don't know bit. why you need to irradiate the robots. <laughs> I will say that. Uh, 
who directs it? I'm thinking Neil Blomkamp. Oh, we're doing a film. This yeah. is not a this yep. is not a book about nope. like what yep. it means to be human. Nope. Oh, it's a it's both. It could be both. There could, could be there could on, be a novel, best selling novel. No, 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 a novel, then a movie, then a novelization based on the movie. Nice. And then uh, a like straight to PC video game. And then a sequel <laughs> as a comic book. Find it on Steam. Yeah, mm-hmm. find it on Steam. Yeah, we do need a title though, for regardless of I, what it is. I don't want to circle back to Cybernet Hicks too much, but I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> I really kind of like that one. I think Louisiana Nine is kind of like, <laughs> you know, like kind of interesting. And if I saw, oh, Louisiana Nine, and uh, and you know, like maybe the picture, the the cover of the novel was like an alligator coming out of out of a swamp. You know, you could just see the top of his face, kind of his nostrils. <laughs> but then in the background was uh, was like a robot. But he also has an antenna on his yes, head. Yes, there cyber it is. Gator. Yeah, he's like Rosie <laughs> from the Jetsons, but also an alligator. <laughs> Can you speak with like an English accent? Like a really. Like, the alligator? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's mods. What? Yeah. The mods are on a different continent. Oh. Why would the alligator need to speak? This is, this is a tournament play continent. Yeah. He, he gets hacked. The hero hacks the alligator. Obviously, you hack the alligator, I think, to protect yourself. But yeah. I, don't, I don't think when you're trying to protect oh, yourself. Oh, he has an alligator like, sidekick? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that speaks like Alexa. That seems more thriller than I slasher. just feel like, in order, if you're hacking the robot to save yourself, I don't think you need. I don't think you're going to be like, take a second to be like, also give the robot. Like, like Mary. Well, he, Berry he, he like staples an Ale- a Siri on it or something, or an Alexa. <sighs> Guys, I really liked where we were headed with the director and the name. And then down, we down in the Neo Bayou, right? We're uh, <laughs> no, no cybernetics. Cybernetics was pretty good. Um, Louisiana Nine, but all the zeros and O's are zeros. All the O's and I's are just zeros and ones. Mm-hmm. That's the novel. Mm-hmm. Then it then it becomes Cybernet Hicks for the movie. <gasps> Bionary. <laughs> Bionary. All right. That that works. I'll I'll accept that. That's it, right? Yeah, that's it's the next that? Netflix get get with us. Yeah. Holla. Give us twenty million dollars. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. We'll, um, uh, we'll plug we'll do this. Kay. That Westworld show is really gonna die out any minute now, but this one has legs. Bionary. Get Bionary. Us. See you guys on the other side. <laughs> We're gonna get moving. Spencer, what are you drinking? So this is from Sailor's Grave Brewing, supplied to us also by producer Maddie. So this is an Australia beer, as I understand it. Here's what I do know. When she got here, she said, I brought a bunch of Australian beers. One of them is poison. Some of them are great, and some of them I haven't tried. I think she said two of them were poison. Oh, are there, two, was... are there two poisons or just the one? Well, there was the just bacon just beer. The one, yeah. Well, the bacon beer was unclear if it was poison or not at it the was, time. It, it was, was very much poison <laughs> yeah. upon consuming it. But th- this is the one that was explicitly called out as poison. In in our introduction, so I've not had it yet, um, but here we go. So is this, this is the down she goes. Yes, yeah, Sailor's Grave Brewing down she goes, and I like a the goza. Yeah, so I'm wondering how poison. Yep, suspect it's, that it's bubbly. We'll yeah. get in there. Yep, it's Green not Iron it. Monk bubbly. Yeah, yeah. That thing looked like a fucking prop in a goddamn B movie <laughs> from the fifties. Wow, that's not a great face he's just made. I don't understand. <laughs> I just he's going he's going back wow this is like some Lovecraftian shit like but I he's must, not <laughs> I can't look away yeah, I can't look away yeah <laughs> I can't stop tasting it the it's second so bad. taste was a completely different beer like the first taste was like I guess there's a little salt and lime on there and the second was like that's a warm Miller light um Ooh. I don't like that beer at all if if I'm being totally honest um 
It's not offensive uh, to me. T- now hit it again. See if you get something totally different on the second end. <laughs> oh, yeah. It gets skunkier. Yeah. yeah. It, gets, that's a, it, it turns into a green bottle beer like the second you get it out of your mouth. That's a two for me, but I don't know. You're rating it. Um, I think it's probably a two. I yeah. would actually say the first the first drink was like a 2.5. The second drink was like a 1.5. Yeah. So I'm averaging here. It's probably mm. a two. Using math? Yeah. It's not good. Um, <laughs> I don't ever want to consume this beer again. So if you brought more of them, don't. Uh, but see, that's the thing. I could see myself getting drunk enough where I didn't care. I was drinking that. And that's well, that, two level. That, oh, that, yeah. that applies that's to a level lot of me. beer. That seems like a I good I know. Not ones. Though. It yeah. doesn't apply to ones. No, it doesn't. Just okay. quit drinking. If you're a one, there's no level of drunk I can conceive myself being. In which that is okay. So this narrowly escaped that. Yeah, no, it's not even narrowly. It's easily out of sight of that. Okay. But it's still in the two range. Yeah. Yeah, it's a two. All right. I would say it's a two, which is um, uh, Cheetos. Yeah, it's a which Cheeto. Which is actually quite fitting because I wouldn't want to drink this again just because of the of it, much like a Cheeto. That if I'm drunk, I'm going to eat some fucking Cheetos. That's exactly right. And it's going to be shameful. That when is... covered in that orange powder of shame. Exactly right. And passed out. Hey, we're into Ask Mixed Six, where you people continue to submit questions that you want us to answer because you think we have good ideas? Wisdom. Or advice? Um, None of the above, but (laughs) in that vein, Sebastian Lindbergh asks, what, if any, is the value of provocative art or media? Hmm. I thought this was an excellent question. Yes. Well, to challenge one's assumptions about life and, uh, you know, your own viewpoints. All right. Well, segment's over. Ross yeah. has yeah. weighed in. Solve right. that problem. Well, yeah. I think the question, beer. Sebastian. Uh, no. Um, anyway, uh, so I think there is definitely value in it, and um, not to be the guy who brings up Nietzsche, but but, but you are being that. I am exactly being what you're that doing. Guy. It's exactly what you're doing. I mean, slave moralities are a thing, and like sometimes intentionally productive art challenge that. They challenge what is actual ethics and morality yep. versus what is you know, societal tools placed mm-hmm. on oppressing people. And I think that's extremely valuable. I, um, I, yeah. That said, I think the majority of provocative art that is just productive, especially in the modern day, is not doing that. Um, but I imagine, like, when you're going to have that remit of, like, taking down unjust societal norms that are oppressing people, you're going to have some target acquisition problems, and that's fine, but then, you know, performance art happens at you, and you have to pretend to be okay that there's a guy underneath the floorboards wanking it while you look at a box called Art that happened to you? Um, that's a literal performance art piece. There's The guy sits under the floorboards of the galaxy, gallery masturbating, and you're told that while you look at a box called Artist's Shit. He did right. use an apostrophe, though. Um, mm. I can't. For, I can't remember his name, but like, that's where you also get like Yoko Ono's cut piece and like stuff like that, which I'm not like terribly interested in. Like, oh, men are trash. We, I, I didn't need you for that, Yoko. Like, thank you. We got it. Um, so, like, yeah, I, I do think there's some target acquisition problems, and that's where you get people like, you know, the Republican minds up, defund all arts. You know, ban crayons, that kind of bullshit. Um, and I don't want to go that far. But I do think, like, the sort of negative rap provocative art can get, sometimes it's warranted. Sometimes it's just bullshit. Like, but then you can't pick that. Like, it's like free speech. Like, the value of it is taken in overall, not in every individual action of free speech. The value is in having it be available to you 
and having it occasionally hit, not in every single one being like a profitable interaction with someone's opinion. And I think it's the same way with art. So I think you need to make it about everything, even if it's controversial and provocative, because occasionally we need that. But uh, oftentimes it will just be, you know, edgy for edginess's sake, which in 2018, I am completely over. Yeah, every, everything bothers me. And yeah, my so my thing is and, and the first thing I want to admit here is that I have no critical, effective, good vocabulary for evaluating art. I'm the worst. I can walk around a museum and just be silent because I don't have anything to say. I don't understand how to evaluate art in a lot of instances. For the most part, my assessment of art is do I or do I not like that? And that is kind of the extent of my critical depth in, in a lot of instances. Um, the, the other half of that then is when I find value in provocative art, art that is provocative for the sake of being provocative, it's because someone has told me in advance that it's meant to be provocative. Post hoc explanations of a thing as provocative are rarely compelling to me, and they're almost always an explanation of why I don't think the thing is good or successful or bad or whatever value terms you want to put on that that probably don't matter in a lot of ways coming from individual opinions. And so for me, the value is... Um, does it offer me a vocabulary for, does the word provocative or the frame provocative offer a critical vocabulary for me to understand what I think the thing should be doing and whether or not I can weigh in on how I think it's doing that? And if yes, it's valuable to me. And if no, I really lack the depth as a human to be able to make much of a more robust opinion other than that. I'm just not good at this this evaluation. And the problem with a lot of fine art is that it is some fine art is accessible to people without a background in it and some definitely is not. Right. A, lot, a lot of fine art now is commentary on other styles right, exactly. of artwork and other things. And that is that is sort of like the conundrum because like at a certain point you can only say certain things in reference to other artworks. Right. So you kind of have to have that vocabulary, that background, that education. In it. Um, I mean, that being said, of course, I fucking love provocative art. I love vaporwave and everything is terrible. And um, I think it's actually meaningful and it has says interesting things to say about society. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Like, so like I, I was looking up an example. So that that's something people, so um, mm-hmm. um, a minute I mean, by silence, a minute of silence. Did you read about that one? Uh, uh, Marina Abramovic, where yeah. uh, you know she sat in MoMA mm-hmm. and just made eye contact with yeah. someone sitting in a chair with her. Oh yeah, and I think like as provocative art, that's very interesting because the provocation was the idea that someone would pay and or even take a trip to have someone make eye contact mm-hmm. with you. But the fact that it went on so long, so successfully, was the fact that the point of the art, like. It's provocative to you to have a human connection through the eyes with another human being. What does that say about your modern condition? That is a deeply artistic statement that I think people need. That is provocative performance art in a way that Mm -hmm. I think is useful. But then at the same line, you also get Bracco, the guy who takes money to stare at you and heal you from illnesses. Mm -hmm. And you can't have one without the other. And I think that's the nature of provocative art. You have people who are just edgy, are scammers are trying to be on an edgelord for just a reason of like they have some sort of deep psychosis where they must be seen as controversial or otherwise they can't deem themselves as having self-worth. And that happens too because you got to let everybody try if you're going to have a provocative art. But at the same time, it is infinitely worth having that level of mm-hmm. shitheadery 
to have people that make legitimate artistic statements through challenging norms. So that that's what I sort of meant. She, that same artist, I believe, I also had another performance piece uh, where she sat in a museum and but like explicitly allowed people to walk up and touch her uh, in any way they chose. Uh, yeah, they, it was a cut piece commentary. Yeah, uh, yeah. which and is that, you know, they had to Yoko stop Ono that. gives everybody scissors and they can cut off pieces of her clothes if they so choose. Yeah, and I get that it's like, well, people choose to do it, but like as a psychological experiment, which is really where the art comes from. Like when I go to a theater and you say the purpose of this piece of art is to cut clothes off Yoko Ono, we're sort of selecting for assholes. So uh, I, I think that is. Uh, y- it undermines that, but like, yeah, she's also done pieces where she set herself on fire accidentally. Like, and you know, that's probably not, that's a little too provocative. That's a little too hot of a take than when you're on fire. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's my take on it. I think it does have value, but like, if you get tired of it, I think you're also right. Does that make sense? Oh, like, totally. Like, I think it, I think it's very clear to say this went too far right. or this is a vapid, um, breaking of taboos just for its own sake. Right. Uh, and at the same time, be like, well, that is worthwhile. But, like, you don't get one without the other. Right. Yeah. The trick for me is, like, you'll very rarely win an argument with me when I say I don't like that thing. And you say, but it's provocative. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, if that if that is the extent of the depth there, then you've not done much for me. And yeah. so I think that's probably. And again, that, you know, to that point, that's because I don't. I, I don't have much of a, a, a bag of resources for evaluating these things outside of that frame, but I think that's part of the deal too. Um, that that you get what you get when you when you expose people to things like that. So right. Um, okay, we're gonna grab more beer, and on the other side, it's the return of the mix six mock draft. Yeah. And watch exit through the gift shop if you haven't. Yet. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. basically what this is about. <laughs> Caleb, what are you drinking? I am going to drink from Alltech Lexington Brewing and Distilling Company. Uh, the website's just KentuckyAle.com, if that's easier. Very remember. helpful. Um, I'm going to drink their Kentucky Honey Barrel Brown Ale. That's, that feels like too many words. This is one of our ones we got from Origins, I believe, right? Uh, no, this is from Brownie, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah. But I, I, like I said, I made the disclaimer. I can't yeah, yeah. keep track. There's just a room of beer now. <laughs> we, um, we has many beers. It's like I made a wish to a genie. It's like, I just wish I had a, a room filled Endless of supply. beers. And it, it came true. Um, it's an ale brewed with Kentucky honey and ginger aged in oak bourbon barrels. Here's what I'm interested about with this. Honey's a difficult flavor yep. to do in any kind of beer. Haven't seen it work well. And... Can that be anything you taste at all, especially with ginger against a bourbon barrel? Right. Because like when you age something in a bourbon barrel, guess what? Tastes like it's aged That's in a bourbon it. barrel. Like so I'm gonna give it a shot. We tasted a honey honey flavored, honey based beer just a few weeks ago and, and we had this conversation at the time that there was no honey. Oh, Caleb looks reasonably pleased with this this beer though. That is quite good. There's some sweetness on the end there. I don't know about this. Hmm. I have never seen some sweetness that cuts into the sort of oaky smokiness of a bourbon barrel, but I think the honey actually shows up there. It might be with the ginger. It might be more ginger than honey, but it's a little, it's a lot lighter for something Ooh. that I would expect out of a brown or a barrel. You know what? That, that tastes like someone poured a beer into a ginger ale. Yeah. That's what that tastes like. And I'm fine with it. Um, yeah. I'm going to give it a cheese nip. 
That's surprising. That's a four for me. Huh. Okay. Um, it's interesting. I'll give it that much. It's a brown ale I'm going to remember, which is fucking saying that's, something. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Um, hey, we're into the Mix 6 Mock Draft, and this week, Greg Bennett has suggested you're charged with planning a block party for superheroes, Infinity War. This will be the single greatest crossover in the history of Mix 6 Mock Drafts. <laughs> Do you just get a Dustbuster then? <laughs> Okay. Uh, using anyone from Marvel, DC, Image, or otherwise, who mans the grill, who tends the bar, who plans the games, who runs the DJ booth, and who's the DD? So here's what we've done. Uh, we have organized it by Grill, Bar, Games, DJ, DD, uh, and we're just going to go top to bottom, starting with grill, ending with designated driver, and I am going to just let you go first. Okay. Um, I'm a good person. On like the that. grill... I'm going to go with Cyborg. I think he's got a spatula attachment in one of those arms. Um, I'm going with Cyborg as depicted in any Teen Titans cartoon, not the horrible monstrosity that was inflicted upon us in Justice League. Um, Doesn't count. Didn't happen. Wiping it from my brain. Yeah. Uh, Internal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind style. Uh, If anybody has that you know, sort of service going on. Yeah, for sure. Get at me. Yeah. Um, but I think Cyborg is constantly grilling in the cartoon. He, he's typically the grill master in the cartoon, so he seems to have experience. Yeah. Um, he does still have a mouth, and that is his one, like, remaining human part other than his brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I imagine he's sort of like a gustatory enthusiast, as that's like... He can't feel things with his hands anymore or anything like that. I imagine he's, like, very into food. And uh, he's certainly got a spatula attachment in one of those arms, I'm saying. It's like a fucking Swiss Army knife. Yeah, no, I like this pick quite a bit. I like the utility of it, right? I mean, he is kind of a walking utility in some ways. Mm -hmm. And you never know what you're going to need on the grill to get things done. So for me, I kind of thought uh, about the grill more as the, like, the... The grill is kind of the moral center of the block party. Mm-hmm. It's it's where um, the the thing which binds us all together, the food, comes from. And so I thought, who might be the ethical center of a good block party for superheroes? And for me, it's Captain America. Okay. I can't agree with this, but how long has he been de-iced? Uh, I'm going to say at least 10 years. Okay, then that's fine. Yeah. If he's fresh off the missile, like, he's still doing rocking 1940s food. So it's going to oh, have, yeah, like, for sure. jello with pastrami and, like, nope, everything's yeah. going to be fucking boiled. Right. It'll be disgusting. No, this is Captain America. No one will see like, it. At, yeah. He understands yeah, right. the, the food of, of, of 2018. All right, yeah, Absolutely. that's fine. I think yeah, he yeah. can learn that quickly. Yeah. I think he can. Here's the other trick. I think that the grill person needs to be, like, a cheerleader for the things happening at the block party. You know, someone who's calling out, like, hey, looking good. Hey, glad to see you and the kids. There's, and I think there's perhaps America. no more American position to bingo. have at a block party bingo, than bingo. the Grill Master. So bingo, I'll give you that. bingo. Yep. Okay. Uh, we're on to bar. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go Tony Stark. Yeah. Was my was my first choice, and I not, changed it. Not teetotaling comic book Tony Stark. Right. Drunk as hell yeah. movie Tony Stark. Right. Because, you know, he knows what you want to drink. He knows how to make it. Yeah. He's drinking one with you. Um, he's going to be chatty and sort of convivial, but he's also going to keep the line moving because you're like, you know, Tony Stark's not going to put up with a sad bastard drunk holding up the line. Right. Um, he's going to be able to know how to make everything. He's going to pour too much booze and everything because he's not frugal. He's a millionaire. So their drinks are going to be strong sure. is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so Tony Stark's your man. And I don't think it's close. Um, here's why I think it's close. So I started thinking about what, what does one need at a block party? And the reality is if it's outside, you're using coolers probably. 
Uh, and if you're using coolers, you're probably just drinking beer. Yeah. And so I thought, who do I want handing out beer? And in that way, I think Tony Stark is wasted because mm-hmm. all of the personality, all of the convivialness that you've 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 described, conviviality goes out the window if a guy's just opening a cooler and handing a beer off to you. You need somebody who's transactional, who's going to give you your ice cold bush light and be on his way. And so in this instance, I think that Lobo is actually a really good choice. Like, who better understands what beer you might need to drink in the moment? Oh, you look like you've had a day here. Have this Miller Light. Or, oh, look, you're going to play some bags. Here, have a bush light. Lobo's a bartender like Bill Murray's a lar- bartender. Like, you're going to order something, and he's just going to give you tequila. But the trick is you're not say, ordering there things. there you go. You're not ordering things. It's You're pulling things out of a cooler, and the things coming out of a cooler are one variant of bottled beer cut three different ways. I think that your thing about this robust bar, yeah, in a high-end setting. It's a block party. A it's cocktail not a gr- party. It's, not, it's a block party. Yeah, uh, block parties You are had to get a permit for this shit. Shit. Yeah, like, but they're not it, setting up bars, man. They're bringing out coolers. Like these people are like, "Hey, we got some leftover Millers," and bingo, bingo, you've got your beer supply. I think you're right that in a traditional cocktail setting, Tony Stark is the winner here. That's not what we're in. Lobo's going to start some fights. He's a terrible to have a party. You might need someone to start a fight at a block party. Like, what if some of the neighbors get a little unruly? <gasps> what if a rival block shows up, mm. and now you got to defend the neighborhood? <laughs> now you got Lobo. Okay, yeah. Uh, we're on to games. Uh, okay, uh, Plastic Man. Toughest one for me here. That's a really good call. He's going to be able to explain multiple games to multiple people while staying at a central location. So he's going to teach you like how bags work and also how washers work and also how shuffleboard works. Hmm. Uh, he'll be able to play Frisbee with you. Like He can run five games at a time, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. by just stretching everywhere. Also, notoriously fun-loving like loves to have a great time he's a jokester you want a plastic man running your general conviviality yeah i actually like this pick because he's managing he's not playing see yeah yeah i was thinking in terms of who do i want who do i want contriving the game's repertoire you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so the management aspect is interesting and i never even thought about plastic man in that way but for me i kind of went down this path of who do i want setting up games and so I started thinking, like, well, obviously the Riddler. I mean, he is the game master of the DC universe. Like, so, so then I went They're down to the dark path. It's going to be dark and deadly. Well, so here's the trick, right? He's not. You've ar- invited Jigsaw to run the children's birthday no, party. No, I haven't because he exists, and that's pretty much arcade. Because I also, I almost chose arcade because I thought that would be like a deeper cut than the Riddler. But Murder World is not what you're looking for at a block party. So there is still some element of Edward Nigma that is <laughs> yeah, like, arcade. That's who I picked her. <laughs> right? Yeah. Who is kind of like fun and quirky and interesting and and, frankly from a parent's perspective those games are going to be so complex that they're going to keep the kids busy for a while so the parents can get drunk at the block party which is really I think the only reason any of us schedule block parties in the first place so we can mutual babysit while people get drunk as kind of a group there's a single bearer bond capable of paying for your entire college education at the bottom of the ball pit but also it's filled with filthy needles that's exactly right (laughs) Go, and, children. And one of those parents Fight for your future. is going to be debt-free on their child's education, <laughs> and the others are going to spend the evening at the hospital. But that was going to happen anyways at the right kind of block party. Okay, we're on to DJ. Uh, I'm, this, is my, this is my Dark Horse pick. I'm going to go with Paul the Skrull from when the Skrulls had Skrulls impersonate the actual real-world Beatles, all of whom who died... But the one who li- played Paul McCartney lived and is still existent in the Marvel Universe. So there is a scroll out there who has spent 30 years impersonating Paul McCartney. 
and I think he would have pretty good musical taste. That is a very deep cut. <laughs> I, I want to argue it might be too deep. So I instead but thought... But here's, here's the thing. You don't have to advertise it as the scroll impersonating Paul McCartney. You can just say, Paul McCartney's DJing my block party. That's a get, all right? That's going to bring people... It will cause if you bring the flyer. I agree with that. So my thinking is you're looking for someone who is fun-loving, someone who has a, a wide-ranging sensibility when it comes to what kind of music you might want to listen to, and someone who understands the mood, which I think is important. Beginning of a block party, you want maybe like some, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, some welcoming, like, hey, everybody, we're here. You know, as it gets going, then you want to you up the vibes. Maybe you play some Drake. Maybe you're playing some 90s hip-hop or R&B, right? As the night starts to dwindle, maybe you're playing um, some, like, some jazz, maybe some blues. You know, people are drinking beers. It's nice out. It feels like the end of the Sandlot. Um, you need someone who has who has a variety. Mm-hmm. So I've gone with Deadpool. Um, <laughs> I think that you know his kind of mastery of popular culture, his understanding and and implementation of music to meet the tenor of the film uh, makes some sense here. No. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> no. Thank you. No, no, no. Thank you, Producer Ross. Yeah. No, just just, just the Deadpool that we, the cinematic Deadpool that we get with headphones in, listening to the right kind of music for the right it's kind of fight. too much of a troll. Suggests, yeah, that's exactly. okay, too. He's going to troll the party. It's that's gonna okay, too. It's going to be the fucking too. chicken dance for 40 DJ, minutes. DJs are supposed to be, troll a little. It's going to be like Grandma got run over by a reindeer in like every remix that's been ever made of that. That would be, I think, a fun party, no, is what I am no. saying. Just get uh, Dazzler, all right? Dazzler's a professional singer. Oh, man, that's going to be a real, real 80s. <laughs> yeah, right. Is it's that gonna be, 80s? It's going to be Pat Benatar and not much else. Is like, that is that oh, for a blog party that you're too good for Pat Benatar? <laughs> I'm not. I'm just oh. saying. She provides a light show, too. It's going to lack variety. Oh. Variety for the win. It's Deadpool. Yeah. Uh, last pick is Designated Driver. You've gone with? Cyclops. Yeah. It's basically his superpower. Right. Is to be the Designated Driver. It's like primary superpower, DD. Secondary shoots lasers out of his eyes. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's it. Yeah, you want a Boy Scout. I actually went with an X Men, but a separate separate idea here is which. Oh, this is a good pick, right? Because you're, you're gonna smell like shit, but you've been at a block party all day, so you probably already do. Yeah, that's right. Like when you want to get home and get home quickly, you're it's the end of the night. You're drunk. You don't want to throw up in the back of a lift. Uh, you just need to get there. Nightcrawler. Bingo, bingo. If you're going to throw up, you throw up in another dimension. That's exactly right. Nightcrawler and then, doesn't have to clean that no shit. No cleanup. Next thing you know, you're at home in your bed, which, you know, Nightcrawler probably should have left you in the living room, but whatever, he missed. Uh, and you didn't have to drive. You didn't have to ruin anybody else's night. No one even needs to leave the party because Nightcrawler's back in an instant. In terms of utility, Nightcrawler. And here's the other thing, though. If you throw up in Cyclops' cars, I think that's a feature, not a bug. Ooh, yeah. like that's the goal. Uh, here. Yeah, I think a lot of people want to throw up in Cyclops's car and have him. Sort Wolverine of like, is paying you money yes. to throw up in Cyclops. Yeah, Wolverine's car. having a great time. Mm, yeah, I kind of like that. <laughs> um, okay, that's been the Mix Six Mock Draft. Don't forget you can vote on Twitter hashtag Team Spencer hashtag Team Caleb. And on that note, we're going to grab one more beer and we'll be back with our fifth segment. Your number one vote getter, Nerd Splainer. Hey, Spencer, what are you drinking? So another one of our Australian editions, thanks to producer Maddie. This is the Prancing Pony Breweries Hopwork Orange American Pale Ale. I'm interested to see what Australians think. Also 10 out of 10 just for that title. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and a good little label to boat. 
To boost? To, to Okay. Well, I'm struggling. <laughs> to boat to boost. Mm-hmm. It, what's it a boot? Wait, that's that's not an Aussie speak. No. Yeah. Um, yes, that is, that is very much a pale ale. Um, it's a very good pale ale, though. It is really light on the back, back end, almost disappearing on the back end, in fact. Um, I enjoy that quite a bit. I would drink more of it. That is probably a four for me, which... Because Caleb's a little bit wrong about how Cheez-Its and cheese nips work is a cheese nip in this rating system. Uh, and we're into Nerdsplainer, which was the number one vote-getter this week. And we're talking about something that I can actually participate a little bit in thanks to some recent moving watching. Uh, what are we talking about? Um, so the other night we watched my neighbor Totoro while we were a little bit drunk in my house. Yeah, we did. Um, and thankfully it turned Brandy into a weeb. Just instantly. It just instantly transferred her into full-blown weebness. The next day, she was not paying attention to me, like, at all, because she was playing Stardew Valley and watching Little Witch Academia. It was <laughs> the most miraculous transformation in the history of humanity. It did. It, watching My Neighbor Totoro did everything that mentioning anime wants uh, every fan wanted to happen. Yeah. Um, and it... it you know, it corrupted your wife, and you're watching a lot of them now. Yep. Um, but thankfully, you're watching a lot of Studio Ghibli stuff. I am. Well, we've watched two, and we have three others now that were yeah, that, are that like she in instantly the went out and bought. Yes. Um, in an in intense fervor of enthusiasm. It was it was a hard commitment. So like two days later, so we watched uh, My Neighbor Totoro, and then we started to watch uh, Howl's Moving Castle, and we didn't finish Howl's Moving Castle. So. The, that was a Saturday. Monday, Brandy comes home and has purchased Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away. Mm-hmm. And by Friday, had recruited from Friends, like almost every other Studio Ghibli film she could find. Yes. So Ponya, I mean, we have a stack of, of Miyazaki films now, Studio Ghibli films, sitting in our living room. And you're just in for a treat. Because they're great. Uh, I think so. Have yeah. you finished Howl's Moving Castle we at this point? We have finished Howl's now, Moving Castle. I, I understand that you had reservations and i figured this is what we could use nerdsplainer we could be more productive in nerdsplainer than we sure could. we could get you past these and into a childlike love of miyazaki movies yeah i mean i think it's going to be a uh, fruitless but nonetheless um <laughs> uh, exceptional attempt so here's let me say this that before um people start throwing things at their uh, podcast listening devices I think that Howl's Moving Castle was really beautiful, and I thought My Neighbor Totoro was very interesting and largely fun. Uh, I am realizing and hoping that this is not a theme as I watch more Studio Ghibli films, that typically the end and or back half of a Studio Ghibli film is not nearly as good to me as the first half or maybe even 75-80% in the case of My Neighbor Totoro. So, like, for example, when My Neighbor Totoro ended, I refused to believe that that was the end of the film. <laughs> what, she got lost for a little bit and then she was found and then right. everything was fine again. That, that the entirety of that film's exposition was in fact not exposition position it was just stuff and then there was eight minutes of kind of conflict where a small child went missing and then the movie ended uh after the child was found safely how's moving as the limehouse has pointed out that was originally released as a double feature with grave of the fireflies which i will not be inflicting on you because the point is to convert you and not make you the saddest person yeah i don't even know what that is but we're not you want me to give you a summary of it don't know okay no it's too early it's too early right all right put tap the brakes right it's sad (laughs) Yeah, well, I I can imagine that for me, the style, the art, um, 
really kind of like beautifully looked, the, mm-hmm. you know, these stills, functionally moving stills that yeah. we're seeing. I assumed that's where my neighbor Totoro was heading. I mean, yeah. there's like this this like major pathos with this giant cat, and you, mm-hmm. you're not sure when and why it's going to matter. And lo and behold, it really doesn't matter. Um, and so I kind of thought this is where this was heading. Howl's Moving Castle, on the other hand, is so much backstory. I mean, everything going on is weird, and there's so much context building and so much world building. Uh, and then... Almost none of it seemed to matter in the way I thought it was going to matter. And so one of the things I'm realizing is that none of these are going the way I think they're going to go. Um, Howl's Moving Castle, The la- well, let me say this more specifically, the last probably 45 minutes of Howl's Moving Castle might be the 45 strangest minutes of film <laughs> I've ever watched in my entire life. Um, I was... Just wait. Well, yeah, so, like, I I know, like, I'm going to watch Paprika probably this week. An hour into Howl's Moving Castle, part of me thought it was maybe going to be one of my favorite films of all time. Mm -hmm. And then the film ended, and I'm still not sure what happened to that first hour. (laughs) It was stunning and weird and kind of interesting, and I'm sure some of it gets lost in the translation. But there just seemed to be a rush to cut together things that maybe didn't matter all that much and or hadn't been identified and explained earlier in the film to now provide some resolution to a conflict that seemed to blow up rather quickly. And so I don't doubt, I understand the allure of these films. I think they're beautiful. I'm going to watch more of them with arms wide open. Um, Something still isn't clicking and or working for me in the ways that I think people want these films to work for me to fall in love with them. All right. So here's the nerd explainer thing. And I've actually done this multiple times before in teaching film classes and when I have to present anime, especially to people who are like new to like the concept of anime, I typically use Studio Ghibli because it has enough of the tropes and enough of the style to get right. it without being you know the intense maturity and like the intense understanding of like Japanese culture required. Yeah. So here's the thing: they're Disney movies, and I mean old school Disney movies when they're all based off Grimm's fairy tales and like Germanic folk tales and stuff yeah. like that. And they make them out as much sense as like. A slipper is magic, and you wish for something, and a lady shows up, and you, you get magically transformed, and a pumpkin becomes a carriage, and mice sew your dress. It, it's as magical in the thinking as that. It's, the only difference is, is that it's pulling from an entirely different culture. Um, and so that's, that's what I really try and emphasize is like, this is their Disney movie. Like, right. it is based on their own culture, their own folktale, their own history, their own religions. Um, it's as magical, as whimsical in some cases more so with the sheer skill of the animation, but it's just not pulling from a canon of literature in which you have sort of like through the bullshit of Joseph Campbell's monomyth been steeped in since the moment you could recognize sure. narrative. Well, sure. and um, aside from that, I mean, yeah, there is a massive amount uh, 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 of that. There's also they... Um, there is a different sensibility, a different aesthetic in storytelling totally. in a structural level. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, Japanese have an appreciation for what the, I, I would call slice of life, uh, like My Neighbor Totoro, that is sort of like just making a movie about a person's day. Right. And that's it. And that that's like that's perfectly fine yeah. according to the Japanese and have nothing happen or have very little happen. That's actually to capture the essence of this floating world of this sort of transitory world that we live in um, is a perfectly valid element of the Japanese art. And you know uh, what? Aesthetic. That yeah. might be the way to go. So if yeah. you're attacking Miyazaki, like maybe Howl's was like too much too fast. 
because like he also does like these pretty socio-realistic drama like so the wind rises is just about the rise of japanese aviation and it is bone realistic yes. like yeah uh or his son did up on poppy hill which is like a socio-realistic like 60s 70s um romantic comedy but it's just animated mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and and so like it's it's very relatable other than the fact that like it's taking place in a different country it, you don't have to deal with like Oh, the 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 fire demon is also the sorcerer's heart, and that is somehow tied to the witch spell that made you old, but only sometimes. Right. And this house walks, and that scarecrow's also is the prince. Well, you <laughs> like, yeah. There's there's less to grasp. Yeah, I mean, there's also, I mean, there's more like tradi- I mean, adventurous, like faster paced ones, like um, Princess Mononoke. Uh, which is which we've got yeah, yeah, yeah. and haven't watched yet. Uh, that, that's one of my favorite films. Yeah, it, and it's badass. definitely based on like yeah mythology you're not going to be familiar with, but right. like it's paced more. Uh, it's paced a lot like a traditional blockbuster. Thriller, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, or Spirited Away, which actually is probably going to be the most like a Disney movie in mm-hmm. terms of like a but child having a more vision. intensely weird in terms of the mythology. Yeah, I mean, I don't if you look at some of the Disney movies like their their t- adaptation of Alice in Wonderland stuff like that. I mean, that. I've shown some people Spirited yeah. Away and freaked them the fuck out. Yeah. Like No yeah. Face yeah, is yeah. hard for some normies to wrap their heads <laughs> yeah. around. And like I said, Spencer is so normal, he might as well have normal tattooed on his fucking neck. <laughs> but that's He's not aggressively normal. normal. Mm-hmm. That's a He's paradox. the type of person right. who's never heard YouTube right. play yeah. before. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think the thing that I struggle with is, um, in a lot of this stuff, and, and I'm totally willing to admit that a lot of it is based on uh, sociocultural stuff. I mean, you're right. I've been raised in a Western tradition where stories have very specific arcs, and we think about conflict existing in a specific way, and at a specific time, and things are paced appropriately. That's not a shameful thing, though. Nope. It's like, you just have to realize that like they're pulling from a different thing. That, and, I mean, it's a style. And, not right. Like, yeah, yeah. And all of that I can deal with. I think the, the thing that I've struggled with the most on the back end of these films is the four reasons bit. And so, like, yeah, when all this stuff starts to happen in Howells, right? Like, why does uh, Turniped need to also be a prince? who has found the love of his life, but she doesn't love him. I mean, but for the randomness of it all, I struggle to find the why did we need to even interject that into the film in the first but place? But here's the thing, and that's the beauty of like watching films from any culture. Right. But I think the culture that we have most access to in America is obviously Japanese culture. Um, the thing is, is that your movies are just as bad sure. about the four reasons bit, but you're taught not to examine that, especially when you're a child and you're sort of steeped in the sort of eternal logic of its own, like, story time. Sure. Trying to get into Rabelais and, you know, uh, Bakhtin and shit, we can. But, like, um, you're sort of steeped in And the, the best part about these sort of international movies, and especially movies so deeply uh, rooted in folklore or mythology, is that you realize that, like, your own stories operate off that insane dream logic of nonsense. Sure. Like, uh, like that, that doesn't make literally any sense. Um, And once you start to see that for stuff like movies you grew up with, like Mm -hmm. the sort of Disney canon of like these films based on folklore, you realize it goes to every other film ever. Because like you have films where like there are countries where if you get thrown out a window, you don't recover. Right. You're horribly injured. You need to go to the hospital. You don't have a heroic shoulder wound when you get shot in the arm and it just denotes how badass and how bad you want it. Mm -hmm. It's an internal logic to an action film. And other movies have completely different internal logics for that. And um, I think that's really the benefit of Miyazaki, because in, in, in addition to just being genuinely delightful. Right. And I don't think you can argue that. No. 
Like, they're, it's just full of wonder. It's a visual treat. The music is great. They're beautiful to look at. I think the animation is stunning. Um, I think the the um, imagination of all of it is, like, quite incredible. Um, and just some of the things that happen are, whoa, holy shit. Okay, that's crazy. Yeah, um, they, 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 in addition to that, but they give you, like, if you really get examined into it, like, you can research the folklore and the mythology of it. And I think, sure, if you get far enough into it, you should. But I'm not saying it's, like, a homework assignment. But, like, at the base level, they can provide perspective of just like totally wow we're we have the same like storytelling you know nonsense as everybody else oh yeah oh I, yeah i mean i think um it's like it's like reading creation myths from other religions yep. and like the first time you do that in college right and someone and you're just like well that's fucking crazy like right. he laid an arrow on her and she got pregnant and then yeah so-and-so was burked out of so-and-so's forehead and then you and then the professor just starts describing genesis to you right and it sounds as batshit insane as everything else. Like, it, it's very much that, but in, like in a popular culture framework. And I am enjoying that, kind of situating this against other things that, you know, that we've talked about, and Brandy and I have been comparing things that would happen in a traditional Western fairy tale as compared to what we're watching here, and that's been enjoyable, and so it, it has been nice to get a, a, a um, reference point. So, certainly nothing off-putting, nothing that's going to turn me off watching the rest of the ones that we've cobbled together via purchase and or loan. Um... Uh, yeah, hasn't captured me in the way that I think uh, those of you who have aggressively sent me uh, anime to watch and or love probably hoped that it would enrapture me. But that's okay. I got I got a lot of movies to watch still, so we'll see. My current plan is to get you deeply into Miyazaki, then we go back to Lupin the Third, and then we wrap back up into weirder anime. It's a circuitous route. Right. But that's my goal. I do feel like there is some, like, uh, there's definitely a path to integration here and some heavy lifting that needs to be done <laughs> to get me to where I should go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm appreciating, you know, the big O, um, the Miyazaki stuff, I think probably Trigun, Trigun, which Jeb Dale has given me. I think these are probably good entry points before we get into the weirder stuff, the harder stuff to process. Um, I'm glad I'm not there yet, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that real slow, uh, and I'm not, not rushing. So, hey, we've got one beer left and one topic left. It's drunk enough. We'll be right back. Caleb, in this, our final segment, what are you drinking? I'm going to drink Country Boy Brewing's Key Lime Cougar Bait. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the name of it. I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not confused about what the name is, but mm-hmm. I want the sort of implied inflection question mark to right. express my Skepticism. dubious nature right. my, towards this beer. Because there's no question mark on the can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's just you. It's a very utilitarian looking can, by the way. I it's typically find that I don't like key lime beers as much as I like lime beers. Yeah. This, the, the odd sweetness of a key lime is never good for me. That's not a good face. Caleb does not seem to... He's going back, but he, I think it's just to confirm he really yeah, doesn't yeah, care yeah. for it. <sighs> he's a glutton for punishment, Caleb is. It's like kind of a flat sequence. Oh, no. Ugh. Sequenches carbonation, frankly, is half the battle for me there because I'm not, I'm, I don't super love a sequench. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I offen- like sequench. It's, it's not okay. offensive to me, but um, I give it a three. Like, I've had worse. You know what it tastes like? That's a cheese it for me. It tastes like a Corona that someone poured a lime into an hour ago and then no one drank. Yeah. And yeah. now here's your Corona with leftover lime in it. Yeah. That is what that is to me. Nice. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I don't love that beer. No. It's a um, three, though. It's, okay. That's actually we've, better we've than I thought We've definitely had worse. Yeah. 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 I mean, I thought that was going to go a lot worse. Yeah. If it were warm, it would be undrinkable. <laughs> oh, if it was warm, I would throw it out the house door. Like, right. Okay. I would just run over Please there don't and break chuck my it windows. into your yeah. yard. Okay, that's fine. I, would, I didn't break your windows out of respect for you, and I want you to know that. Thank you. Um, yeah. In Drunk Enough more. today, we're doing something a little different. I know that we typically reserve our game conversations for dissecting our fun, but... Um, but you obligated us you to try um, Tales of Arabian Nights the other day. It was sent to us by a listener. Yep. Thanks thank so you much. very much. It, uh, we uh, thank you in a previous cheers. Yes. And and really and truly, thank you for sending it yeah. because it was an experience. Yes. Um, but I will a, play it again. Yes. But it's a weird experience. But would you call what I'm doing with it playing? That's the trick. So we got us. It got us on this kind of like uh, this rabbit hole esque conversation. If you've not played Tales of Arabian Nights, um, we'll, we'll explain the game here in a second. But but the core of this conversation is what makes something a game. And here's why this is a drunk enough, and I'm okay with it not being a dissecting our fun. I hate the concept of asking this question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This sort of like intense categorization of like, mm, that's not a real game. Just feels like so country club, disconnected, dumbass white guy, like level of questioning that is, it It just kind of sickens me to even be talking about it. But I would also be dishonest if I didn't say that Tales of the Arabian Night made me precisely ask this exact, exact question. Yeah. Um, at the same time, the one reason I can come at this is that I am not approaching of like, is this a game from a negative perspective? That's right. I love it. Was, I had a great time. It I was had a great fun. time both times I've played right. uh, Tales of Arabian Night. I imagine I'll have even more fun the next times I do it. Yeah. Um, but it is hard to call a game so, after having done it. Right. So here's the trick to Tales of Arabian Nights if you've not played it. First, it, it's a pretty robust game. Um, and I'm using that term at this point really just to identify that this is the thing that we understand this thing to be. We, we call it a game. The, the question that we'll get into here in a minute is what does that mean? It's a pretty robust set of things. So here's how Tales of the Arabian Nights work. Um, you play one of any number of characters who are moving about the Arabian Nights setting, India, Europa, etc. And you are moving from location to location, encountering cities and places and people and spirits and demons and beggars and thieves and in those encounters the other people at the table are engaging in a complex system of matrix checking and reading yeah so you have to explain the wonkiness okay so you're gonna go to a space right you can go as many spaces as your wealth rating, right. which is an interesting mechanic. Sure. And it's sort of like reduced returns when you get higher level of wealth and that kind of stuff. Um, you can land before that. So you land on a space, you pull an encounter card. The encounter card will have a city on it, in which case it will just direct you towards a single encounter. Mm-hmm. But if you save that card, you can have one of the six encounters listed on that card if you go to that specific city. Um, otherwise, it's just another encounter card. Most of the cards will have like a single item on it, like Warfleet, Serpent, Ifrit, something like that. Yeah. And it will have six individual symbols. So you're going to look at the individual symbol that matches the space you're on. Uh-huh. Then you're going to add the number on that space. Yep. Then you're going to roll a die. Yep. Then you're going to add any player bonuses you have for that space, and it's going to give you a number that's typically just a random adjective. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like a dubious Ifrit or a 
needy war fleet or something like that. Then it will also give you a paragraph number. That first paragraph number is just going to tell you what reaction matrix to go on, Mm -hmm. which is a different set of up to 12 different items, sometimes up to 25 different items that the person looks at. Then you're going to roll a third die that is a white die with a plus my, it's a fudge die. That will either add one or subtract one or leave the number the same. Then you'll look in a book of over 3,000 different encounters Mm -hmm. to the specific number that you rolled on the reaction matrix, plus or minus one, and that just tells you what happens. And then what happens there can be affected by the skills you have, but never, ever in the way you think it's going to be. That's right. um, And so as a result, the game is fucking kooky and insane. And from a design perspective, it's one of the most interesting things I've ever seen. Yes. But there is no choice point in there in which is rational in any way, shape, or form. You, you just move around the map and shit happens to you. And, and a book that someone two people to the left of you is reading tells you what happens to you. So, And again, from a design perspective, that's great. Because like, if you're playing a four-person no game, three out of the four people playing... Right are like thoroughly engaged with the game at any given time. Always doing something. Like and like the design of the book and how like the the tales are always almost always weirdly accurate to like yeah. what you're doing, like yeah. the number system alone mm-hmm. is staggering. I can't I still can't figure out how it works underneath the hood. Right. But there's zero strategy. There's none. Right. You can just move around and shit happens to you. Yeah, I think so I've been thinking about this a lot. I think what makes the game, right? So for me, and I talked about this a little bit in Dissecting Our Fun, I think there's something to the nature of game, at least in the way that we talk about it, board game, tabletop game, etc. that is, um, I can play this thing over and over again. I can learn its mechanics. I can practice. I can try different strategies. I can in some way make myself better at this thing than you or someone else at the table. And I don't think that And that's, how the other people who play is going to affect how I play. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know if any of that's true yet. And and part of the reason I don't know is because I've only played the thing once. And like you said, there are 3,000 potential outcomes of a decision. And I'm using air quotes here because really what, based on where you land and the things that you have sitting in front of you, there will be an outcome. And when I say 3,000 different outcomes, I mean 3,000 different paragraphs in a book that someone at the table is going to read to you based on a number, which is conjured through a variety of different methods to tell you what's happening to you. But at no point in the middle there do you get a lot of choice about how that happens or what that outcome you is. Get, you get one choice on your reaction matrix, right. which is a player board in front of you. But the one thing we've discovered is that the rational choice in Doesn't terms seem of to the work. verb you pick yeah. is almost certainly the worst choice. Yeah. Like if you have if you encounter an angry lion, like you should pick the verb enter, right, or something ridiculous. I in fact and, and encountered that, a, a like a like a, a a lonely artifact, and you courted it, right, and you ended up married to an inanimate object, and we had a child, and it was and you had a child, and it was one of the funniest things that's ever happened at the table. So that's the thing. I play Arabian Nights, and I have a fucking fantastic time. Right. If you're judging game by like level of fun. Like, when Sarah and I first tried it, and then we were like, the very next night, we have to show Spencer and Brandy this. Yeah. Some of the most fun we've ever had at a table. Yeah. Not sure if it was a game. Right. And <laughs> and again, you like, know. Yeah, that's the thing. So, like. No judgment. You, yeah. Are you judging game by, like, emotional reaction? Because then, yes, it was very playful. Right. But in terms of game, it's like, it's just a system of really procedures. It's pulleys and levers to get you to read it. To read a book. Right. 
that it has funny things happen. Right. But like, can I seek to win this way or that way? You have no way of knowing. No. No way of planning. No, it's non-competitive reading is really what it is. Um, and, and again, yeah, I thought it was fun. I thought it was interesting. And and so when I say I don't think it's a game, I'm not being judgmental there. Um, I'm just, I'm kind of like quarreling internally with the idea that that thing, which I've heard of, people have told me about, people have hocked to me as a great, interesting, fun game. Yeah, I don't know that any of that's true. It's a great experience. Um, I enjoyed myself. I would do it again. I think it would be enhanced with the presence of copious amounts of alcohol. And I think that you would still be able to track all of the various things that you've got to track down on this complex system of pulleys and levers to figure out what matrix to use and then what paragraph to read. But I don't... Sarah won, whatever that means, I think. Um, because at the beginning of the game, you are you are able to kind of like pick your win condition in some weird way. Yeah, there are choice points, but right. they're meaningless. They're meaningless because you have no control over <laughs> yeah. whether or not you contribute to the effect of that choice point. You can't point. aim for a destiny point versus story point. Right. Um, it's just given to you or taken away from you sort of like on this arbitrary system you, you can't understand. Right. And um, that's the thing. Like, so I thought there was lots of strategies in there. Like, I'm like, oh, okay, there's a game part. So, like, one of the status effects, you can get multiple status effects to change the way you play. And it's a dizzying array of something like 30 different cards. Yeah. And one of them, and a bunch of them, like, ensorcelled or enslaved or, um, I think, beguiled. Imprisoned, yeah. Dictate how you move. Right. And other players dictate how you move. I'm like, okay, well, the optimal strategy is to like see what kind of quest the other opponent's going for. And when they become one of these multiple status effects that lets you move their character, yeah. make them run away from it. Right. Which is what I tried to do in the first game, and Sarah still won. Right. And the second game, I'm like, okay, maybe it's the city cards, because that's a limited six-point system, and many of them are positive. Uh-huh. So you just need to go to cities and try and roll that. And that didn't... I came in last place. That no. didn't work either. Right. Um, it's just not... It's not strategic. It's just like blind ass luck. It's not tactical either. Um, it, it's it, it's kind of nothing in some weird way. And one of the ways that I'm really kind of questioning my interpretation of game and whether or not this is a game is I'm not too uh, proud to admit that typically I don't care to lose. Like I'm competitive. I like winning. Um, I couldn't care less if I won or lost this thing because it feels like it said um, nothing about you by any metric you could even like rationalize. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, did you even make a decision that caused you to win or lose this thing? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I just, so, so here's a, here's my problem with it though. Yeah. I agree with you that I am not at the point and thank you so much for listening to send this to us. Cause I, I haven't been this interested in a board game design in a while. Processing. I know this is very old, but like this one's going to stick in my brain for yeah. a long time. I can't call it a game. Right. It's an experience. No. Yeah. I think it's a positive experience to have, but totally. I can't call it a game. Yeah. But in the world I live in 2018, the act of calling a game not a game is so inherently political and I'll be honest, intrinsically shitty. Mm-hmm. Like, the the majority of people I say is like, yeah. Ooh, it's a walking simulator, it's not a really game, is just resoundingly assholes. And I don't want to be that guy. But, like, this was a weird case where I, like, found myself, I couldn't call it a game, no. like, but at the same time, I think it's positive. So, I, like, I don't know. I feel like a guy who, I feel like Robert Frost, who's like, you can't have free verse poetry, it's playing tennis with the net down. Mm-hmm. But instead of like shitting on free verse poetry, I'm like, 
well, it's tennis with the net down, but I still want to play. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I want to be clear. I don't feel like anything goes out of its way to violate the constraints of game here. I don't. I don't feel like there's any negative or malicious action taken. For me, it's just put it in a different section of the store. It's kind of how <laughs> I feel about that. You know what I mean? I, and just, I don't even want that because I don't know how else you would sell it in a sure. market standpoint. Books. Like, yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah. put it in books. Like no one's going to know how to encounter that because like there is some level of game fluency required to deal with the text. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah that's fair. Uh, and so I I just don't, like, I'm at a weird space where I'm like, I don't think it's a game. I think that's a positive. I don't think it's a I bad. would uniformly recommend it. Yeah. But I'm also cognizant of the context of saying, well, that's not a real game. Yeah. Which is almost uniformly a thing said by shitheads. Yes. That I don't want to be. Not like, doing that. Yeah. Not doing that. Please do not. Well, I'm, at least that's not my intention here. Certainly not your intention here. It's not a judgmental statement. I'm just fascinated by the thing which has a lot of capital, which matters, which, you know, people, a, a very kind person went out of the way to send us, and I'm so glad they did because I want to play it again because I really enjoyed it. I but, just think it's a weird thing. But it's 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 sort of, it's been eye-opening for me, not in the, in the concept of what a, a board game can a, a board game with air quotes can't do. It's that I've been sort of looking at the like, well, that's not a real game yeah. mistake wrong. Yeah. When I should have been like, well, you're being a dickhead. Like when mm, nice people mm-hmm. say Gone Home's a walking simulator and it's not allowed to be a game, they are being dickheads. But I should be like, so what if it's not a game? Right, exactly. Like, that should yeah. be the response. Yeah. Because like, because it's not a game doesn't mean it's not a positive that's right. experience. Yeah. And, I, and I've been sort of like... By, I've been sort of swallowing the bait on that kind of like that game is framing, a value term. Yeah, yeah, game is a value term yeah. that as a framing device when I, I should have never have because yeah. I have fucking fantastic time and I want to play Arabian Nights with everyone I can. That's exactly right. Even though I can't even determine if play is the right verb I should be using. Like, yeah, do Arabian interact Nights? with like right. yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I'm not I'm not sure what I should be saying. We so. could yeah, we could verb it. Just I want to Arabian Nights now, and <laughs> yes. that would make some sense yeah. to me. Hey, if you've been listening to this, it probably means that you're a backer and or a supporter of some level because you stuck around long enough to get to whatever this rambling was, and we couldn't appreciate you more for that. Um, hey, if you're not already following us on Twitter, check us out at the Mix Six. You can also find us on Facebook. We've got a page and a group. Uh, on that group page, you'll find an about section with a list of beers that we've already reviewed, including hopefully reasonably soon the beers that we reviewed on this episode. Thanks to Q at Bucks Belly for that. You can also mail things to us at the Mixed Six Twenty One Thirty One West Republic Road, number 101, Springfield, Missouri, 65807. That is, in fact, exactly how we got the topic of this very conversation, and thanks again for that. Um, also, you can check out our YouTube page where we've got some wonderful animatics made by David N. and some great videos of us cut together saying some really dumb shit, thanks to producer Maddie. Uh, not to mention all of the great beer and not-so-great beer she brought us all the way from Australia. If we met you at Gen Con, we promise to talk about you more specifically at some point, and thanks so much for meeting us there. Uh, uh, don't forget to check out our website, www.themix6.com. This is starting to feel like we just have a lot of things that people could interact with. Yep. Once again, thanks for everything you do. Uh, this has been The Does Mix 6. Does that make you a game? Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. All right, we're uh, out. Just we're done. It. You know who we are. That's the end of The Mix Insert outro here. <laughs>
I conquered some rogue minds Choked on heavy lines Blocked back sunshine Stroked on metal tines I've lost rap seven times Brought back several rhymes Death in the seven seal Cut you off smacking your prime He who collects the chess pieces Rests easiest Rappers vine to be the cheesiest The young jeeziest Please your soul next Crane over my projects You funny Not even Nick Cage could get next Vexed at external tragedy Though I take it lavishly Convinced I was a bad MC But life is going to pad at me Those who try to stab at me Can just stay that mad at me Cause on the mic I dabble with that honor or humanity <laughs> I plug you before I plug your ears Make him wonder if you ever was there Like Baron Stay Bears True voices Keep talking even when nobody hears Two choices Bob your head or cut off your bloody ears And you better bob it to the ones and threes Out of time bobbing at the venue really bothers me Bottom line rhyming to stay out of the red Wishing you could be the one I can't get out of my head <laughs> I cockin' some rogue minds Choked on heavy lines Blocked back sunshine Stroked on metal tines I've lost rap seven times Brought back several rhymes Death in the seventh seal Cut you off smacking your prime I've tried every type of tea Leave me with no choice I've tried every type of voice Figured out who to be I'm